And there we find a young woman named Mariam, or we call her Mary. She was engaged to be married. And then an angel appears to Mary, saying that she's going to have a son. She's supposed to name him Jesus, which in Hebrew means the Lord saves. And he will be a king like David, who will rule over God's people forever. And then Mary asks, okay, well, how is this possible? Because I'm a virgin. And she's told that the same Holy Spirit that brought life and light out of darkness in Genesis chapter 1 is going to generate life inside her womb. God is about to bind himself to humanity through the conception and the birth of the Messiah. And so Mary goes from some backwoods no-name girl to the future mother of the king? Exactly. In fact, she sings a song about how this reversal of her own social status points to a greater upheaval to come. Through her son, God's going to bring down rulers from their thrones and exalt the poor and the humble. He's going to turn the whole world order upside down. So when Mary was really pregnant, she and her fiancé, Joseph, had to go down to Bethlehem. Yeah, there was a decree across the Roman Empire about new taxes, and so everybody had to go get registered in the town of their family line. There were so many visitors in Bethlehem, they can't find a guest room. And so the only place they can find is a spot where animals sleep. Now nearby were some shepherds with their flocks, and an angel appears, which, of course, freaks them out. But they're told to celebrate because tonight in Bethlehem, a savior has been born. Yeah, they're told to go and find this baby and they'll know that it's the Messiah because he's going to be wrapped up and laying in a grimy feeding trough. Yeah, which is pretty gross. Totally. And then these shepherds who aren't very clean themselves, they go and find the newborn Jesus in this really dingy place and their minds are blown. They go home wondering what on earth is about to happen. And this is all really strange. I mean, if God's really coming to save the world, this isn't how you would expect him to arrive. Born in an animal shelter to a teenage girl, celebrated by no-name shepherds. Exactly. I mean, everything is backwards in Luke's story, and that's the point. Would you pray with me? <laughs> Heavenly Father, pour out your Holy Spirit on me and on all of us who are gathered here. Lord, take my words and make them yours. Take all of our thoughts and make them yours. And take our hearts and set them on fire for you. Father, we love you. We ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. <clears throat> Fear not. Do not be afraid. It's always the first thing that the angels or God says to people when he appears anywhere in the Bible, right? And some people will say it's because the angels look scary, right? If you read the Old Testament descriptions of an angel, it's like something out of your nightmares. Six wings and eyes all around and like weird mishmashes of animal body parts thrown together. And if that was what you saw, that would actually be pretty terrifying. But if you pay close attention when you read the Old Testament, you'll see they're only described that way in the middle of a prophet's vision when he's seeing something beyond just the world around us. Every time an angel comes that people see with their own eyes, physically here in the world where they can reach out and touch them, every time, they just look like a person. They look like anyone else. In fact, multiple times, they don't realize they're talking to an angel because there's nothing about them that would tip them off, that this is not just a normal person in front of them. And I don't know about you, but it seems kind of weird to me that God, to announce the birth of his son, would send the scariest possible thing to a bunch of people who were out in the middle of the wilderness on the lookout for danger. It doesn't make sense. 
I think the angels who popped up in front of the shepherds probably looked very much like normal people. I don't think they were afraid because the angels looked scary. I think they're afraid because fear is our default posture when we're around God. We are afraid. We're afraid of the unknown. We're afraid of what God will ask of us. We're afraid that God either cannot or will not save us. We're afraid that somehow, someway, God is more of a danger to us than a Savior. One of the best parts about the way Luke tells the story is that he highlights God's ability to use the actions of his enemies to fulfill his plans. Caesar Augustus is not just an unbeliever. He, he's, in his own mind, a rival God. He calls himself the Son of God. You can still find it on Roman coins. Caesar Augustus Divi Filius. Caesar Augustus, the Son of God. It's on the money. He calls himself the Savior of the world. There is literally a cult that exists to worship Caesar. There are temples to Caesar built all around the old Mediterranean. He calls himself the Savior of the world. He calls himself the Prince of Peace. And the reason he demands a census is because he wants more control, more power, more taxes. And his egotism, his imperialism, and his insatiable desire for more, 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 that is the reason that Jesus is born in Bethlehem, right where the prophets of God always said he'd be born. Because no matter who you are, no matter how powerful you may be, no matter how much influence you may have, no one can stand in God's way. No one can foil God's plans. No one can prevent God from achieving his purposes in the world. And no one can match his power or his wisdom. And so the great irony of the story is that the only person in this story who should be afraid is the only one who isn't, and that's Caesar. The shepherds have nothing to fear. But Caesar should be shaking in his boots. Luke even makes a point of calling the baby Christ the Lord. He uses the same title you would normally give to the emperor, the Lord. So that the people reading it know this is the one. Caesar claims to be the savior of the world. He claims to offer peace to everyone who lives within his authority. He claims to offer safety and provision. He says he'll protect you. But it all comes at a price. You've got to bow down to him. You might have to experience some violence to get the peace he offers. You've got to pay your tribute. You've got to be perfectly obedient. And you can never set a toe out of line. Jesus is going to offer all of those things Caesar claims to offer, but he'll offer them for real. And so the claim Luke is making is that this tiny newborn infant lying in a food trough surrounded by livestock, born to a couple of nobodies in a tiny little village that no one's heard the name of, is the real Lord, the real Savior. And the emperor in Rome, no matter how much money he's got, no matter how much authority, no matter how much power, no matter how big his armies are, he's nothing. He has less power than this newborn baby. There's actually some things about this birth story we tend to get wrong. Right? So we imagine 
Mary and Joseph arriving in a strange town, and they find all the hotels booked up, and then Mary's already going to labor, and they put her in a barn, and she immediately gives birth, right? Every time you see the story portrayed, she's arriving into town, and it's like she's already going into labor. She gives birth on that night. But the thing is, Joseph's family is from Bethlehem, right? He is of the line of David, and this is the city of David. By the way, no one outside Bethlehem calls it that. To everyone outside of Bethlehem, Jerusalem is the city of David because that's where he was king. The only people who call it the city of David are the people in Bethlehem because they're so proud of the fact that David came from their tiny little town. Which means everyone who can claim to be descended from David is a hero in Bethlehem. Every house in that village is open to him. All he's got to do is tell them his ancestry and he is welcome on whatever door he knocks on. You notice that, it talks, that the text actually says, while they were there, the time came to give birth. It kind of implies they're there for a while before she gives birth. Which makes sense because this is the first point and they're always late, right? <laughs> it takes some time. They're there for a while. They're not in a rush. And the end. If you, uh, you know, when you get home, you want to open up your Bible to Luke chapter 2, which I know the first thing you do on Christmas Eve, you get home, open up your Bibles, but there's even a footnote there in my Bible, probably in yours, after that word in. Because the translators let us down. The word doesn't mean in. The word just means the place to stay. There's a totally separate word you use for an inn where you pay for a room. This word is what you use for the guest room in someone's house. There was no place in the guest room. See, houses had two rooms. You had a guest room either in the back or on the second floor, and you had a family room. And in the family room was a stable. And your front door of the house went through your stable. And by the stable you had two or three mangers carved into the stone to put food for the animals at night. Because every family has animals. You've got cows, donkeys, sheep, whatever. And at night you bring them into your house because that way they don't get stolen, but also they heat your house for free. They're not staying in an inn somewhere. They're not, trying to, they're not staying out in someone's barn. They're in someone's living room. They're sharing the family room of someone's house. All this imagery that's put in here about being in the manger, being surrounded by the livestock, being not in the guest room but in the family room, what Luke is trying to tell you is they're born in a warm, loving home. They're getting the highest measure of hospitality, but they're in an ordinary person's house. And that's going to matter a lot to the shepherds. Shepherds are outcasts. They are dirt poor. The rabbis consider them unclean, which means you're not supposed to be around them if you ever want to go into the temple. And by the way, that's probably a big part of why they were afraid, because if you're unclean, you don't want to be where God is. And here they've got the angels of the Lord telling them this incredible, glorious message. And they're assuming because they're unclean, they are about to be on the receiving end of a smiting but they're not. They're also going to assume, because they're unclean, that they would not be welcome at the birth of the Messiah because they're assuming he's a king. He's going to be born somewhere in Jerusalem. He's going to be born to a wealthy family. They don't want the unclean people around. Until they hear the angel tell him he's going to be wrapped in swaddling cloths and laid in a manger. That's not where a rich person's baby will be. 
That's not where the baby of a noble family is going to be. They know when the angels say that. This child is born to ordinary peasants just like us. See, that's good news. They can come and see the Savior because he's one of them. So Jesus is born and he's laying in a manger, but that manger is in a warm and loving and welcoming home. It was just a very ordinary home. His birth is good news to people like the shepherds precisely because it happens in the home of an ordinary peasant family, just like most ordinary babies of that time. Jesus is welcomed into the world by the loving embrace of ordinary peasant families who are experiencing the warmth and hospitality of another ordinary peasant family. And the first visitors he gets are the unclean shepherds that nobody wants to be seen with. That's why he's good news. That's why we have nothing to fear. There is no one Jesus rejects. The Lord of all creation did not come into the world surrounded by luxury or riches or power. Everything about his birth overturns our ideas about what God is like and who God favors. You have nothing to fear because Jesus was born for you, even you. You cannot be so unclean that Jesus doesn't want you around. You cannot be so unworthy that Jesus will not enter your home. See, our fear around God is not born of any genuine reason to be afraid. Our fear is born of the simple belief that we aren't good enough. We aren't worthy. We haven't done enough to be acceptable to God. So whatever salvation and peace God may offer can't be for us. And even lifelong Christians who think they know better deep down, fall into that same pattern of thinking. And see, that's when we start looking for other saviors. Saviors we can comprehend. Saviors who offer salvation at a price that we understand. People understood the price that Caesar offered for his salvation. They didn't like it, but at least they understood what he was up to. We don't understand a God who would come to us as an infant born to ordinary people in an ordinary home, visited by ordinary shepherds. And see, that makes us afraid because we don't understand. But my friends, we are ordinary people. God came to us as one of us. If Jesus was born in that house 2,000 years ago, he can live with you in your house. If he was good news to the shepherds, he's good news to you. So forget your fears. Forget all the reasons you think you have to call yourself unworthy or unclean. They don't matter. The gospel is personal. It's for you, specifically, individually you. So fear not. Because for you, this day, was born a Savior, Christ the Lord. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.